Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's convocation. I am Suzanne East. I'm the core director at Goshen College and also a faculty member in the education department. And it is wonderful to have some of the first year class here with me actually in person this morning. We've done so many convocations by Zoom and it's nice to have the big community feel again. For those of you joining us by live stream, welcome to you and a special welcome to some of the parents of our speakers that I know are joining us today by live stream. Every year in Core 100, we cap off the semester with what we've come to call StoryCorps. We've borrowed this title from a national storytelling project that seeks to collect the stories of everyday people. In the words of the National StoryCorps project, the goal is to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world through the simple act of storytelling. And in a sense, that's what we hope to do with the stories that students tell in ICC. Build connections with each other and foster a stronger, more gracious campus community. Telling a bit of our story honestly and authentically is a vulnerable thing. And yet when we open ourselves to that kind of sharing, our ties to each other are deepened. Our compassion for one another increases. At the end of the semester, ICC profs are invited to nominate a few people from their section to tell their stories live in an all-campus convocation. And five brave souls have said yes to this invitation. This year during a pandemic, when it's been harder for new students to develop connections to this community, it strikes me as especially important to hear and receive the stories of a few members of our first year class. And professors, upper class students, as you encounter first year students this week who aren't speaking today, I'd invite you to ask them what they chose to highlight in their ICC story. I'm gonna briefly introduce all five of our storytellers in the order in which they'll present, and then I'll invite our first person to come to the stage. So first, we will hear from Cassie Swertnia, who is majoring in sign language interpreting and minoring in sociology. Cassie is from Lake Zurich, Illinois, and she'll be sharing a story about what it means to be a joy. Following Cassie, we'll meet Julia Jun, a South Korean student who was raised in Malaysia. Julia is a music education major, and she will be telling us what she learned from a stress-induced eye condition that she dealt with in high school. Our third speaker is Isis Espinosa, a TESOL and secondary ed major from Elkhart, Indiana, and Isis will be sharing her mother's immigration story and her pride in her mother's journey. Fourth up is Tiffany Ross from South Bend, Indiana, a marine and environmental science major. Tiffany hit a low point in high school and will reflect on what she learned during that time about our tendencies to judge other people. And then finally, we'll hear from Noah Schnabel, a music major from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Noah will be reflecting on body image and his own struggle with an eating disorder in high school. Students, thank you for your bravery in sharing your stories with this wider audience, and we are ready to receive your words.
Ah, there we go. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> um, my name is Cassidy Swartnia. I'm from Merrill Crable's ICC class. Um, well, okay. Um, and I'm going to talk to you today about family. This is my family. Aren't they lovely? Um, family brings each and every one of us together, and they bring us many different things, traditions and lessons and morals and complications. From waking up on Christmas morning and spending time together to learning how to ride a bike, from feuding families over football games to walking the dog on a brisk autumn evening. All of our families do things just a little differently, things that bring them joy. For me in particular, there are two traditions in my family that go hand in hand, dressing up on my birthday and remembering what it means to be a joy. This story starts not with me, but with a strong series of women who preceded me, Lila Joyce Wallander, uh, Claudia Joy Jerka, and Nicole Joy Jerka, my great-grandmother, my great-aunt, and my cousin. They have all one thing in common, the middle name Joy, or some variant of it. The only one of these people I actually have a close relationship with is my Aunt Claudia. This is mostly because my mother considered my Aunt Claudia to be more of a mother figure in her life than my actual grandmother was. Nicole, Claudia's actual daughter, and the only one close to me in age, died before I was born. She was hit by a drunk driver when, I was, when she was 21. I was just a baby. I never had the pleasure of meeting her, and instead I carry her legacy through my middle name, Joy. And it took me many years, in many years and one event in particular to understand this, though. You see, birthdays are a big event in my family. We celebrate harder than anyone else that I know. And my favorite part is that I get to dress up however I like. This is the only holiday I get to do this. My mother will dress me for every other holiday. When I was a kid, my mom and I fought on every single thing, and this was especially true on what I wanted to wear on my birthday, because we have very different styles. I wanted to wear the exact same thing to school every single year. It was a long pink dress with soft white checkerboard accents, and I loved it. My mother hated it. <laughs> and she would turn to me and she would say, you can't wear that. And I would beg and plead, why? Why? <laughs> but I never got an answer that I understood. I was too young. After many years of this back and forth, the stars aligned so that when my mom and I were having this argument, my Aunt Claudia called to wish me a happy birthday. And I, being the little pain in the ass that I was, explained the situation to her knowing she would absolutely take my side in the argument. And of course she did. Why can't she wear the dress, Sandy? That's my mother's name. It's her birthday. You need to be more laid back. And at the time, I didn't understand why those words were such a big deal. Nicole was known for being laid back, being carefree, being understanding. My aunt and my mother, on the other hand, have a constantly worrying mind. What if? What would they think? What would happen? When Nicole died, I talked to my aunt, and she said she learned many lessons from Nicole's death. And she came to an understanding that life is way too short to worry as much as she did. At the time, 
All I understood was I got to wear my dress. <laughs> the saying hindsight is 2020 reminds me a lot of Nicole's situation. In the wake of Nicole's death, my aunt learned many lessons that she passed on to my mother who instilled them in me. I am often told that I am the embodiment of who Nicole was. I am laid back and carefree, fun and creative, always searching for a different viewpoint, constantly looking for the good in others and finding new kindness within myself. These are base aspects of my personality. Though I never met her, I carry the gifts she gave my aunt, who passed them to my mother, who enforced them on me. My birthdays are now no longer, oh, there we go. My birthdays are now no longer a fight to the death between me and my mother. I get to wear whatever I desire, and so does she, even if we hate what the other one is wearing. I no longer consider it just an outfit, though. They have become a reminder of the women who have come before me. I stand in the mirror, and I constantly wonder what it would be like if Nicole was here. I would never be the same woman that I am now. My aunt would never have taught those lessons to my mother, who never would have given them to me. So every time I dress up for my birthday, speak on the phone with family, or have someone point out when I'm inspiring or creative, I think back to my middle name, and I remember what it means to be a joy. Thank you. Picture this, it's winter break of 2019 and I'm lying down in a surgery room of an eye clinic in South Korea with my eyelids turned inside out. So what is going on and why was I there? Well, let's rewind back to two years, to 2017, the first semester of my sophomore year when one morning I woke up with a bump on my right eyelid. And at the time, I had just moved back to Malaysia from Goshen and enrolled into an intense homeschooling program that I had to complete in four months instead of the usual six. So even though the weird bump was concerning, I was like, I have bigger things to worry about. I have this big essay that I need to write. And I pushed it aside, thinking that it'll probably go away in a couple of days. And then came junior year. After finishing online school, I transferred into an international boarding school away from my family. And it was basically the most stressful year of high school. And strangely enough, as one stress piled on top of the other, I noticed that the bump from my sophomore year grew in number and size. So now I had bumps on both of my eyelids. And by now you're probably wondering, what in the world is going on with her eyeballs? And I was thinking the same thing too. And turns out, after some Google searching, what I had was called a chalazion, a bump that forms when the oil lens surrounding your eyelids gets clogged, sort of like a pimple. And chalazions are usually caused by excessive eye rubbing and stress. And by now, it was winter break, and my eyes were at their all-time low. Let me tell you, they were swollen and sore, and they were constantly tired, like something was weighing them down. And 
By this time, I was doing hot compression every day, which is the normal remedy for chalazions, but the bumps were just not going away. And this was when I knew that my eye condition was serious and that I needed to seek a professional. And thankfully, my, a friend of my mother's recommended a good eye clinic in South Korea where my medical expenses would also be covered. Sweet. So my mom and I booked the next flight to South Korea, and we were honored they were there as soon as possible. And a day after we arrived, my mom and I took a 45-minute subway from my grandparents' house to the clinic. And when we got there, I went in for a checkup, and the doctor lifted up my eyelids, and her eyes widened. She took one look at my eyes, and she said, yeah, we need to schedule you for an eye operation immediately. But my unusual eye condition meant that I had to wait for all the other patients to leave from, for the doctor to focus on my procedure. So that same day, after the clinic was empty, a nurse finally guided me to the surgery room where she told me to lay down on a long examination table where soon after the surgical process began. First, the doctor started with my upper left eyelids using a clamp-like tool called a Calaisian forcept to turn my eyelids inside out, and then proceeded to inject several numbing injections into my outward-facing eyelids. But just like that, a small mosquito bite-like sensation was surprisingly all the pain there was, and I couldn't feel a thing throughout the rest of the procedure. Thank the Lord. But I noticed that my surgery took longer than the usual five to 10 minutes that it should take, and took 45 minutes. And after the surgery, I soon learned that when a normal person would have maybe one or two chalazions, I had a total of 16. And I remember the doctor saying, after the surgery, she said, out of all the patients I've seen from my 30 years of medical experience, you are the first patient with 16 chalazions in your eyes. You have set a record, child. <laughs> so what did I learn? Well, of the many lessons I've learned from this, I wanted to highlight three. The first obvious lesson would be that I will never ever rub my eyes with unsanitized hands ever again. Yes, I was onto this lesson even before COVID, and this was certainly the hard way to learn the lesson, but it was a lesson well learned. And secondly, and on a more serious note, I learned to take the time to process the stresses in my life. To me, each Calaisian represented the stresses that accumulated throughout my numerous transitions. And it took me an eye condition to realize that I never actually took the time to stop and process any of these life-changing events. But most importantly, I learned to be thankful, even in the midst of stress. I remember coming out of the eye clinic after the surgery with a cold ice pack on one hand and desperately clinging on to my mother with the other. And at that moment, it hit me. It hit me that the most simple and mundane body functions that I took for granted actually mattered. So next time when hardship comes, I have learned to take a step back and focus on the smallest things that are going right in my life. It could be the warm taste of bittersweet coffee that morning, 
or the full eight hours of sleep the night before. No, all those things, no matter how small they are, are things to be thankful for. But most of all, I will never forget to always be grateful that I have a set of lungs to breathe, hands to write, ears to hear, and eyes to see. Thank you. Hi, my name's Isis Espinoza, and today I'll be talking about my best friend, my superhero, my mom. I would like for everyone to close their eyes, and I want you to imagine yourself in a desert. It all looks dry and barren. Turn around. It's the same exact view, no difference. Start running. Run, 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 because your life truly depends on it. The sweat starts dripping down your back and on your face, and you don't even have a second to wipe it off your brow. You hear the breaking of twigs under your feet and the sound of border patrol running after you. Your heart is beating so fast it nearly jets itself out of your chest. Open your eyes. This was what my 16-year-old pregnant mother faced as she journeyed to the US. I come from a family of immigrants from Honduras, and with no shame, I say that. My mother was born August 4th, 1985, and she lived in a barrio filled with chaos, drugs, and violence. Gangs were a prevalent part of the life of many teenagers and people much younger than us. The dreams of many were ripped out of their hands as they were forced into that life. Hobbies they had could no longer bring them happiness. Instead, they walked around angry and hurt. Initiation into the gang consisted of being beaten for 13 minutes. And if you made it out alive, you heard, you heard the unanimous voices call out, Ahora eres uno de nosotros, un barrio, una sangre. Trying to escape this life could lead you to your death and even the death of your family. So leaving was almost never an option. In 1999, my grandmother left her children, parents, and life behind while searching for a better life. And within two years, she had enough money to hire a coyote to bring her children one by one. And my mother was the third child to be brought. My mother left in the year 2001 whilst being six months pregnant and only 16 years old. She, like many others, left her life in Honduras to find something better for the baby in her womb. She tells me about how she promised her grandmother that they would see each other again, and how she grabbed her grandmother's face, her grandmother's delicate face, and she saw how her grandmother's eyes filled up with tears, not knowing this would be the last time they would see each other. Sorry. The journey ahead was not going to be easy, but there went my skinny little mom in the midst of others in search of the same freedom. My mother tells me that had it not been because of the grace of God, she never would have made it. They traveled mostly during the nighttime to avoid being spotted by someone. She suffered days of hunger and fear during the two months of travel. She recounts how one night they were being chased in the desert, feet hitting the floor and sounds of men panting, children crying, 
Mama, Papa. Running from Border Patrol, she felt the baby coming down, almost ready to give birth in any second. She struggled to push that baby back up, saying, no, mija, ahorita no, todavía no, ya casi llegamos. I reminisce on the various stories that she tells me, and forever will I be grateful for the valiant mother that I have. Because of her and the many before her, I am standing before you today. I am standing before you today as a first-generation Honduran-American. I am standing before you as the first to graduate high school in my family. I am standing before you as the first to be accepted into a college, to be accepted into a university in my family. I am super proud. I am beyond proud of the family of immigrants that I come from. My mama, my abuelita, my tios, my tias, my cousins, everybody in my family has paved the way for me and forever will I be grateful. My mom endured so much in two months because of the love that she had for me. And that's how I learned that the love of a mother can transcend all pain, all hurt, and all borders, thank you. My name is Tiffany Ross, and before I begin to tell you my story, I want to ask you all a question. When you judge someone, how do you feel? How do you... <clears throat> what emotions do you feel when, ju when you, someone judges you, even though they're different from you? I want you to remember this whenever you judge someone. My story begins with a ninth grade year, to which was one of the worst years of my entire life. Not only were my parents going through a divorce, but my friend group dissipated. And for that was a hard time for me, to which I began developing voices in my head, saying things like, we should not trust these people and we're better off being alone. As the weeks went by, the voices started getting worse to the point that it hit December within the last week of school before winter break during gym class when I heard the voice say something different. We need to die. We have to end our lives. And for that, I was about to plan on doing it until a second voice says something different. This is not us. We can't do this. And as the voices started raging about whether I should live or die, I broke down on the gym floor crying. The gym teacher came up to me asking, what's wrong? That's when I told her everything about what I was planning on doing, and my suicidal thoughts. She then had me sent to the counselor's office to tell the counselor everything I had told her, exactly word by word. And when I did that, she called my dad. When he arrived, they both discussed whether I sh that I should be placed in a hospital, to which I was placed at the Michigan Behavioral Center. On the outside, it didn't look that bad. But on the inside, I was terrified because since I was a new patient, I would either be bullied or harassed. But for that reason, I barely even talked to anybody nor looked them in the eye. 
Then lunchtime came, and this girl came up to me, and her name was Cheyenne. She was asking for my name and the things I liked. At first, I was starting to get comfortable with her, until she said she was a Satanist. My back started getting chills because of this, but because of the fact that how Satanists are portrayed as crazy and dangerous. But when I looked at, into her eyes, I didn't see any signs of a crazy person, but somebody who was innocent. And for that, I started talking to her. And then we became very close friends and played video games with each other until it hits bedtime. And my roommate was Edith, her name was. And within the couple of days I was there, she was one of the nicest people I ever met because not only was she there whenever we went to talk something that we liked and disliked, but we, she was also there for me whenever I was nervous or uncomfortable. Then came Friday, which was therapy session day, where we had to ask ourselves and tell everybody about why we are here. I was scared to tell them my story until later I heard from all the other patients' story that not only did I feel anger and sadness, but I also felt guilt. I felt guilty because of the fact that I was judging these people before I even knew like their backstory and how they became the way they are. And after that session, we were basically starting to become close to each other, more understanding of each other because of that. Week two came in and this new patient came in. Her name was Alexis. She was also my new roommate. So during one night, we were both talking to each other about things that we liked and she asked, why was I here? That's why I told her my story and the next words that she said to me changed my life. She said, not only did she say it was a stupid thing for me to do, but she also said that I was basically gonna miss out on the beauty of life and not being there for people that needed me, how much I mean value to others. And for that reason, I wasn't suicidal within the past couple of days since my arrival, but then those words snapped something into me. If I weren't here right now, I wouldn't be able to accomplish the goals I would have achieved, nor be there for my family and friends when they needed me. Within the next couple of days, the faculty received a call from my mom. She said to them to have me to go home early, and they agreed. At first, I was excited, but then I was saddened because of the fact that I was leaving a part of my family behind. So before I left, I started drawing them pictures of mythical creatures. It's sort of silly, but for me, not only was it easy for me to draw, but I wanted, I wanted them to show some sort of significance they have on me, and I want to show them how significant they are to themselves as well. I still miss them to this day, but because of the fact that we can't give our phone numbers nor even our last names to each other, we barely even contact each other. So all I have to say is for right now is that I want people to know when judging someone, think before you act, because each and every one of you has value to not only to others, but yourself. Thank you. Okay, so my name is Noah Schnabel, and this is my story. So my story revolves around the struggle of self-deprecation and anxiety. And if this sounds 
familiar to you, it's probably because it is. I think for the majority of the population, it revolves around something with self-image. And for me, that took place in fourth grade. And if that sounds early, it's because it is. Um, I don't know what happened in my life for a fourth grader to suddenly think he needed to wash his face. But anyway, where other people start their normal facial routines in about middle school, I start in fourth grade. So fourth grade, I washed my face every night and I even cut out chocolate. If you can imagine, my class won a party for this box tops things and our prize was a chocolate cake and I, I, didn't, I didn't take a piece. And the excuse I gave was that I was allergic. So this self-awareness and self-judgment towards myself stayed with me through middle school and up until high school. And that's where the climax of this really takes place, junior year. I was 16, I was about to get my license, I had just gotten a girlfriend and I was finally an upperclassman. From an outsider looking in, this was about to be one of the best years of my life. That couldn't be farther from the truth. Because you see, like I said before, this, this self-awareness and self-judgment that I had had kind of created this habit of physical activity. And so this was something that was really prominent in my life. And so junior year, the first semester, I had the opportunity to take a class, weight training. And weight training was basically a period in the day where I could go to our school's gym and work out. And this was great for me because I had a lot of homework. Like I said, I had a girlfriend and I was in rehearsal. So my after-school schedule was filled. Now, it is hard to say exactly when the weight started to drop, but it seemed like before it started, it had already gone too far. And it actually wasn't me who noticed it first. It was my family and then my girlfriend. And it wasn't just my family. It was actually my neighbor, who was a friend, who had said something to my mom. Hey, Noah's looking a little thin. And then my mom to me, hey, Noah, you realize you're looking a little thin. And my girlfriend, hey, you're looking a little thin. And for me, that wasn't the direction I wanted to go, but I saw something was happening and I wanted to improve the way I looked. So, hey, any improvement was good. So uh, to not set off this alarm, my mom was like, hey, we're going to set you an appointment with a doctor. And so I, I go to what I thought was going to be a, new, a normal doctor's appointment. And, and it really was until at the end, the doctor said, hey, we'd like you to go to see a specialist. So about a week later, I drive to Hershey, which is about 45 minutes away, and I'm sitting in this doctor's office. My parents leave, and my neighbor left. Yes, my neighbor went. And uh, the doctor comes in and hands me a robe and says, undress to your comfortability level. Now, this is totally off topic, but I do want to bring this up. When somebody says to you, undress to your comfortability level, to the person receiving that, that means nothing. I had no idea how much I should undress. But anyway, so I, I, I get undressed, and I put the robe on, and the doctor comes back in, and this is when things started to feel not like a normal doctor's appointment. I was sitting down and, and she took her finger and she was running her thumb up and down my leg and up and down my arm. And what she was feeling was the space between my bones and my flesh. And at the end of all this, she looks me in the eye and she says something that I will never forget. She says, Noah, you are starving yourself. And I was like, whoa. I was like, whoa, that, that's not true. I mean. I feel good, but it wasn't true. She said, your heart is slowing down. And she says, you need to go see an EKG and they need to measure your heart rate. So I go to the hospital and I'm laying, it's like in the movies, I'm laying down in this bed and they strap me up with all these little like tabs and they're measuring my heart. And it's true, my heart is slowing down. 
And they say, you have to stop physical activity or else your heart could stop and you could have a stroke. Now, moments before that, I'd kind of seen this as kind of, not a joke, but I had never really taken it seriously because to me, I felt like I had the control. I felt like I was the one in the driver's seat. And as soon as this happened, it realized that I was, I was just in the passenger seat. And I was being driven by my mind to do something that I had no idea I was doing. So with this in mind, I, I knew that I had to get better. And so the doctor recommended that I go see a nutritionist. And so she said to me, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to have to hospitalize you. And so, of course, not wanting to miss any more school that I already had, I was like, yes, I am okay to meet with a nutritionist. So I met with my nutritionist about once a week, and we just talked. And from that, then I went to go see a counselor because my family and my doctors wanted to figure out why this happened. And I could say the difficulty in all this was having to drink the super high fiber, super high nutrients drinks that tasted absolutely terrible. That isn't the case. The most difficult thing in all of this was having to tell my friends. I don't know what it is with guys. I think there's a stigma with men that we we can share a little bit, but we can't share too much. Um, And we just don't talk about our feelings a whole lot. And that was the case for me. My, fa- my, my friends knew I was leaving school. They had seen that I was out of class maybe twice a week, and they didn't say anything. They would ask, like, hey, where were you? And I'd just say a doctor's appointment. And there's only so many doctor's appointments you can go to where your friends start to worry. But I didn't say anything. And, and finally, I was able to build up the confidence to tell my friend. And I told him something very similar to what I'm telling you right now, and, and it felt so good because I had been telling so many people about what was going on in my life, but it didn't really matter because they didn't know me. It was one thing to tell my counselor who, who didn't really know who I was, and it was another thing to tell my friend who knew, I was, who, knew who I was because they, they had known me since I was in seventh grade. Now, a story isn't really a story without some kind of lesson, so this takes me to what I have learned. And what I have learned is one, that everybody has problems. Now, it it may not be anxiety, and it may not be depression, and it may not be anorexia, but it's something, and everybody has something. And so I had such a hard time understanding that until I went through this, because for my sister who suffered with anxiety, I, I couldn't really understand what she was talking about until I had experienced it myself. And so what I learned was not to judge others, because really, everybody's trying to get through life in the same way. And this takes me to the second lesson that I learned, is that although you may be really worried about what you look like, the truth is, people really don't care. And it's not that people aren't going to point out when your outfit looks like totally fly, or your, your friends are like, hey, your shoes look really good with that shirt. It just means that really, if you think about it, you're not friends with your friends because of the way they dress. Your family doesn't love you because you wake up every morning looking amazing. They love you because you are who you are. And that is what I will leave you with. I know it's super cliche that everybody's like, oh, just be yourself, and that's easy to say, but it's one thing to actually do it. And for me, I couldn't do that. And so I will say that if somebody is judging you, and somebody is coming to you and they're, they're criticizing the way you look, 
instead of feeling harsh feelings towards them, I would recommend that you feel sorry for them. Because in the way that they are judging you, you have to understand that they are judging themselves 10 times harder. Thank you. Would you all join me in applauding our five storytellers one more time? Thank you so much for your attention today. And as you leave this in-person space, please keep COVID distancing in mind. And at the same time, don't let that keep you from approaching our storytellers and offering them a word of gratitude for what they've shared with us today. Thank you so much and have a good day.